seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. These are verses that have caused discussion, debate, and even confusion among Christians really since the time it was written, but most uh, notably the last 500 years. Uh, there has been much written and debated upon regarding what is the exact meaning of uh, this teaching here. Uh, the immediate context, though you will remember, which is vitally important to a correct understanding, is that the author has been preaching about Christ. It's all a Christ-centered sermon, and he has spent significant time writing about the superiority of Jesus in the preceding chapters. Specifically, just before this text is this teaching about Jesus as the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, this mysterious person who is this is expounded upon in chapter 7. But before he goes further in talking about Melchizedek and the link between Jesus and Melchizedek and the kind of priesthood Christ has, deep truths, before he goes there, he stops short. And you remember the last sermon out of Hebrews. He said, you've become dull in your hearing. You've become dull. So I can't go on to the deeper things about Christ. I'm stuck here because you've become dull. That brings us to our text today, Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8, hear God's word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of ins- instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Let us pray. Father, these are sober words. They are your word. I pray, Father, that you would comfort those who are afflicted this morning. And Lord, afflict those who are comfortable. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a a number, there are numerous nuanced interpretations of this particular text. In fact, my college professor, my Greek professor, that was my major, so I spent a lot of time with this man. He did his 400-page dissertation on this passage. Three of these verses, 4, 5, and 6, 400 pages. He concluded in his dissertation that there are 22 possible interpretations that people have offered. 22. So in the next 30 minutes, we will cover, no, we're not going to cover all 22 of them, but we will start to look at, really, you're really worried there, I could tell for a second. There are really two schools of thought that all of these different nuanced positions fall into, to make it very simple. The first school of thought is that this text refers to a people who were genuinely saved, but lost their salvation. Genuinely saved, lost their salvation. Many interpretations fall into that nuance. The second would be that this text refers to a people who were never genuinely saved to begin with. Now, you would expect me to reject the first position, and I will. 
And I don't do it on traditional grounds. I do it on biblical and theological grounds. I won't spend much time with this view, although we'll address it at at portions of our uh, time together. But let's understand why we ought to reject the idea that the text refers to a people who were genuinely united to Christ and then fell away. Let's consider why this is problematic biblically, just briefly. Very simply put, such a teaching does radical violence to many key doctrines. Just think of them for a moment. The doctrine of God himself. Can he keep his word, one would have to ask, if one could truly lose their salvation? Does he change his mind, you'd have to ask. The doctrine of Christ is affronted by such a position. Has he really not lost one the Father has given, as he said? Is his cross work insufficient then? Is he able to keep the sheep from stumbling, as he says he can? How good of a shepherd is he really? One would have to ask if you can fall away once really being saved. The doctrine of salvation itself is done great violence. How safe are we? Are we really saved? The doctrine of the Bible, such teaching directly conflicts with major portions of the Scripture that speak of God's securing elective force upon those he has chosen. The doctrine of man, even. Who is actually the sovereign one in such thinking? You can choose out, you could choose in. Who's really the sovereign one? How depraved is man? Is man really dead in his trespasses and sins with such power over his destiny? The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Does not the Holy Spirit seal the believer? Does he or doesn't he? As he says he does in the book of Ephesians. Who sends the Spirit? Does man bring or draw the Spirit? Or does the Father and the Son send forth the Spirit? You see, great violence is done when one would conclude from this passage given all of the Bible's information on this matter. Great violence is done if we think what this text is saying is that someone who is genuinely in Christ can then be placed out of Christ. None of us are secure in such a setting. I believe the second position is the best position from which to work and to operate. However, I want to caution that I think that things have been left far too simplistically, largely, at least in the evangelical church, the way we explain this verse. For instance, it becomes easy just to say, hey, they were never genuinely saved, and move on as if it has no message to the church. Listen, the text is talking about apostates who can't be renewed. So the text isn't for them. The text is for the church, for good reason. No one who's truly elect will ever be lost, that's for sure. But to know whether you're elect or not depends on perseverance in the faith. That's really what is at the heart of this passage and in several of the more difficult passages that we might come across on this matter. What I would like to do before going through the exposition of these eight verses is give you what I would say are interpretive keys as you come to Hebrews 6 and then other portions of Scripture that you might be able to identify what God is communicating to us. It's important. So look with me. If you have an outline, I have listed those for you. First of all, as we come to this passage or other difficult text, note that some passages in the Scriptures are written from the perspective of God's sovereignty, from the side of his eternal decree, from God's angle. In fact, let me give you an example. You need not turn there. Just listen to these words. They're there listed. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 11, are written from God's eternal perspective. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The, the first chapter and a half of the book of Ephesians is from the perspective of God's eternal decrees. Those eternal decrees give us security. They give us the reality behind what's happening. We can't always identify those things specifically, but we know that God is in complete control of these matters. In fact, you don't receive any teaching about man's responsibility in Ephesians till the second part of chapter 2. Chapter 1 and a half is all about God's sovereignty and election, his sovereignty over all things. It's God's perspective. That's a passage we would identify as being written from his sovereign perspective. Romans 9 would be another one. Listen to these verses. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Can he do that? I mean, he's sovereign is what the writer of Romans is saying here. That's from his sovereign perspective. In Romans 11, another angle from God's perspective as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Those are texts, just to give you an example, that are from the perspective of God's sovereign decrees. There are many others, but recognize there are different perspectives in which passages uh, appear to us. The second perspective, some passages are written from the perspective of man's experience, your living life, covenant life now as God's uh, people. To give you an example, in Deuteronomy, the church is told our Old Testament forefathers, the church there called Israel, God says, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I, have com I am commanding you today, to go after other gods that you have not known. That's here and now. That's covenant life. It doesn't negate God's sovereign activity. It's just coming from man's perspective so we can see what he's commanding us to do. What gives us fuel to obey? Knowing God is sovereignly at work in doing these things. But we then go do. We're responsible. In fact, this is exactly what is meant by the text that Pastor Nathan preached from last week <clears throat> in Joshua. From the perspective of man's experience. Joshua says, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The here and the now, covenant life, living life. This is what we will do. What do you think fueled Joshua to say, I choose the Lord? God's sovereignty behind that. But they're both slightly different perspectives. They don't conflict with one another, but we've got to understand them, especially when you come to a passage like Hebrews 6. But I would submit a few other interpretive keys for you. <clears throat> there are two kinds of election in Scripture. You hear the word election used a lot, especially around here. I hope you do. There are two kinds, though, in Scripture. We must know the difference between the two of them. First, there's what we would refer to as corporate election. 
Corporate election is God calling a people to himself. It's not to mean that every individual in that people group is particularly elect or saved, but just that he has called a people. He called Israel to be his chosen people. The church to be his chosen people. That's us. We're his chosen people, corporately elect. To evidence this, Deuteronomy 7, speaking to the church in the Old Testament, says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love and chose you, and for you were fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he made, that he swore to your fathers. God made a covenant, and that covenant is the basis for his faithfulness in calling a people, the covenant community, the church. That's corporate election. Much of what is spoken of in scripture refers to covenant election speaking to us as God's people in general. In fact, in 1 Peter, the direct connection is made from the Old Testament people of God now to the New Testament people of God, the church, uh, extended out through the Gentiles as well. In Peter it says, 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, plural, but now you are God's people, plural. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So there are two kinds of election in Scripture, corporate election and then individual election. Individual election is what we like to speak of a lot when we discuss this matter, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world chose some to save. And this is a scriptural reality in Ephesians and other places. That's the individual election of the individual person. John 18, 9, this is what Jesus is referring to when it is written, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you had given, I have lost not one. So particular election, one person given to, God, given to Christ, people given to Christ, but individuals make up that group. Individual election. This is what is meant in Acts 13. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's the living out or the, the actual fruit of election in time and space is as many were appointed, chosen that is, elected, believed. So we have corporate and individual election. Now what do you think a lot of the texts of scripture speak of? I would submit to you that we have to look more closely sometimes. Many speak of, even in the book of Hebrews, this corporate election idea. The people of God, the church. This is a message to the church. Then there are particular references to individual election that give us that security, that energy, that fuel to live for him as the people of God. But recognize there is a difference the way it is communicated in Scripture often. Going further with an interpretive key, the covenant community then refers to the corporately elected body, the church. It does not mean that everyone in the body is individually elect. That is only shown forth through time. But as, as, as a corporate body, we are called by God, the church. We're his own special people. In fact, this reality that not everyone that is among us is necessarily individually elect uh, is evidenced in 1 John 2.19. You may remember back. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's a reality. The corporate covenant community will have in its members people who will renounce and reject Christ. That is the fact. That doesn't mean anyone who's elect loses 
their status of being elect, never. It just means that the corporate election, that we are all under the chosen people, that's the way in which God brings forth his individually elect people. Finally, perseverance in Christ is what proves individual election. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's what 2 Peter means to say when it is written, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In other words, the way that we gain security is as we see the Holy Spirit working in our life and changing us, sanctifying us, that's evidence of our salvation, of our election. Let me be very clear from the onset. No one who is elect will ever, ever be lost. But the way you know you're elect is by the work God does in you in sanctification. This letter is written to a people, the covenant, covenant community. It is meant to be taken covenantally, that there have been some of you who have tasted it all and you've renounced it. That's the worst kind of tragedy there is because it reveals their true status. But it's written to us now in the experience of life now. And you have to recognize what we are dealing with with a people now, these Jewish believers, these are converts, and consider what then these eight verses mean. These eight verses, in a nutshell, teach us to pursue maturity in Christ and recognize the danger of not doing so. Now, what specifically was happening with them? Remember, they were of the Jewish faith. They had seen, at least been taught, the transference of all they had learned into fulfillment with Christ. And so many profess that they see that transference and they, they are baptized into the Christian church and they are saying and claiming they are now Christians. But when the persecution comes on here in the church of the, uh, that is represented by the Hebrews, some are saying, wait a minute, I didn't sign on to get eaten alive by animals. I'm going to go back. Now what does it mean to go back? It means they have to renounce Christ because he's the one who fulfills everything. And so the writer of Hebrews is appealing to those who have grown up in the church and are thinking about going back on it all. That's the practicality of these verses. The first three verses entreat us to continue pursuing maturity. Never stop in pursuing maturity. Look at verses 1 through 3. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of the instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Well, what does that all mean? Well, first, we are to continue to seek and know Christ. That's the point of the first two verses. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Seek and knowing Christ means a lifelong study and fellowship with him. Not just study academically, but studying and living. Studying and living. Living among one another. Living as Christ reveals himself in his word. That's continuing to seek and knowing Christ. Moving on <clears throat> from the entrance level that we all begin with. Praise God we begin there. We are not to stay there. Not to stay on the milk of the word as a text that precedes chapter 6 and treats us. In fact, look closely at these different phrases so we might understand how they're moving from the elementary things onto deeper things. Leave the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. What does this mean? Isn't this a good thing? Yes, it is. When they were initially saved, that is, initially confessed Christ, or initially came into the Christian church, they made a confession of sin and renounced their evil works. That's the evidence that you've been saved and you move on from that. But what was happening, apparently, is they were continuing over and over again on that, constantly going back over that ground, never really showing any advancement. 
In other words, they were saying something, but it was never showing itself. It's sort of like the little kid who keeps punching his brother and keeps saying sorry, but then keeps doing it over again. It keeps going back through the whole process. It's saying move past that initial stage to show that what you confess and what you say you grasp is real. Move on from the instruction about washings. What does this mean? It doesn't have to do with something that we would directly understand. It has to do with the ceremonial washings that Jewish believers would have been used to under the Old Covenant, where they would have to wash things, parts of the ceremonial law, especially if a Gentile would come into your house, the, the washings that would go on. The apostles early taught those Jewish believers that Christ fulfills this washing of all of us. So there's no need to continue on ceremonial washings. Uh, we told you that when you first came into the church, so let's get past that, because apparently some wanted to go back to that. Let's get past these ceremonial washings. Move on from that. The laying out of hands is not referring to the New Testament practice of ordination, but rather the laying out of hands that one would do with the sacrifice. You would lay your hands on, or the father, the head of the home, would lay their hands. The priest would lay their hands on that sacrifice. It would be slaughtered. And then to make atonement, the laying out of hands represents your sins being placed upon that sacrifice. No need. Christ has taken all of those, your sins upon himself. And anytime you even act like there's another sacrifice that is needed, you are saying Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient. We've said all that. We, we've covered that ground. Let's move past that. It's Christ. See, all of this is reference to Christ and the teetering that they were doing with regard to whether to renounce him or not and go back to their old way. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Again, when a, a Jewish believer came to faith, there was very little uh, full instruction anyways about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment in the Old Testament. It's there, but it gets its fullest treatment in the person of Christ and his actual resurrection and the teaching of the apostles. Well, this is all pretty new, and it would have been radical and revolutionary. Maybe some of you are like that. A new idea comes. It's tough to take. Whoa, that's new. Well, that's how they were probably. And some must have been getting bogged down in debates over this matter. And he's saying, let's get past that initial debate. We're, we're dealing with initial things. We've already plowed that ground. Let's move on. In fact, think of it this way. You invite me over to your house and you've got a beautiful mansion with this huge stoop that overlooks your, your beautiful door. And I come in in this beautiful entranceway of your grand and glorious house and I walk up and through the door and I'm in the entranceway of your house and I stay there. I just stay in the entrance. I look around. Boy, that's a great door you've got. That's a great stoop outside there. The stairs, I like the way they go up. I can kind of see the dining room. I can kind of see the living room. You want me to come in. You'd like me to come in and fill it, but I stay in the entranceway. In fact, not only that, I turn back around and go back out the entrance and look at the door again, walk back in, stay around in that little entranceway, and I spend my whole time with you in the entranceway. Eventually, I just leave. There are many who appear to enter the church who enter in, but they never, ever move past square one. They keep saying the same testimony, the same words, but there's never actually something being lived out in their life. He is warning against this. He's saying, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And what I love about this balance in Scripture that's throughout, we only move on to maturity, brothers and sisters, by God's free grace. He's sovereign, and it's our responsibility. It's his free grace. Because look at these sober words, these wonderful words, really. Verse 3, and this we do if God permits. The author here guards against pull yourself up by your own bootstrap-itis. 
That's the idea that you can just work harder. You can just drive harder. You can just get on that wheel and keep moving and you'll get success. And brothers and sisters, rest. Only by God's free grace can you grow in Christ. And he's reminding us of that in this passage. In fact, that's what I love so much about our catechism and how it treats this doctrine of sanctification. That's really what we mean by maturity in Christ, by the way. It's sanctification. Sanctus being holy, Efficacion, the, the process of holiness that God is working in us, it's by God's free grace. I think you all would agree with me that justification is an act of God's free grace. You've been declared righteous by God's statement through his son and his righteousness applied to you. Now you're righteous before the Father. You're justified. Free grace. Most people would say that's true, in the, especially in a Reformed church. Yes, justification by faith through grace. Of course. But what about sanctification? Do you say that? Because it's as equally true. God's work in us doesn't stop with declaring us righteous, but he continues to create in us new hearts. He continues to renew us. And that's why our, our catechism says it so well. What is sanctification? It is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Move on to maturity in Christ and recognize that it is by God's grace that you do so. Really, without having more time to spend in this particular subject, if this is a matter you'd like to study more, I seriously commend to you two modern books by Jerry Bridges. One is called Transforming Grace. The other is The Discipline of Grace. He, unlike most authors, is able to put it in simple terms that we can all understand and appreciate without doing injustice to the text that, that is there speaking of this matter. So get those two books and check those out if you're interested further on this relationship between our responsibility to grow in Christ but yet the fact that it's fueled by God's sovereign grace. The first three verses certainly move us to pursue maturity. But let's consider then really the heavy part of the text, verses 4 down to verse 8. While we move on to maturity, recognize, recognize, my dear brothers and sisters, the danger of not pursuing maturity in Christ. In being in neutral is not an option for the true child of God. It's a dangerous place to be. For we have in verses 4 through 6 what I would term the tragedy of breaking covenant with God. These are not people who were unchurched looking at the church and seeing its message and deciding it didn't want it. That's not what this is speaking of. This is speaking of people that are in the church, know everything there is to know about it, have even partaken in aspects of it and reject it. Look at the text with me. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Continue to remember, this is speaking to the covenant community now. So, when is saving repentance impossible? When is it? I believe it is clear that the impardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, is rejection of Christ. The sin of apostasy is outlined for us. Breaking covenant, however you want to term it. There is no greater tragedy and the text moves to describe the one who is guilty of this most heinous of all sins, renouncing, rejecting, turning away Christ. First, it says that this person has once been enlightened. What does this mean? Well, to understand the, what this means, recognize that the Greek word here, enlightened, has to do with more than just a mental ascent. Remember, the Greek, to the Greeks, knowledge was spiritual. To know was to be spiritual. So it wasn't just that you knew a set of facts, it's that they were part of you. Uh, you lived those facts out, or at least for a time, you lived in light of those facts. They governed how you live. So we know that at least means more than just mental assent. 
It is interesting that Justin Martyr, early in the days of the church, equated enlightenment with the act of baptizing someone. That is, they became enlightened and were baptized. So baptism symbolized being enlightened. And think about what baptism means, and this isn't far off of what it probably directly means in this text, that when someone, especially a new convert in those days, stood up and said, I will align myself with the teaching of Christ and be baptized in front of all to see, even though I live in a pagan world that will probably persecute me for it, I believe it so much that I'll be baptized. So baptism is a kind of a cover for this idea of being enlightened. That's possibly true. In fact, one uh, Syriac version of the New Testament actually says those who once descended into baptism even says it that way. I'm not sure that can be said or, or, or backed up exegetically as such, but I think it definitely bears with the idea that they had been enlightened, they had heard the truth, they had aligned themselves in some way with what was being said. Who have tasted the heavenly gift, the text says. What does this mean? Some have said in the same way that baptism is enlightenment, that perhaps this refers to the partaking of the Lord's Supper, that they have tasted the heavenly gift. Some say the gift is the Holy Spirit, but that would seem redundant with what comes next. I, I take the position that I think is best uh, described by the great commentator Franz Dalish, who says, the gift is that of salvation in Christ. A gift it is, because God has bestowed it upon us and imparts it to us in provenient grace. A heavenly gift, because it is sent down from, the heaven, from heaven itself, making us partakers of celestial blessedness. Now, please note, though, what is being said. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've gotten a glimpse of what that salvation would be. And yes, the Lord's Supper is part of partaking in Christ. They've tasted the heavenly gift, but they have not ingested it. They have put it on their lips. They've tasted it with their tongue, but it has not come inside. They've tasted it. You can think of one of the most torturous things if you've ever broken a fast and just try to taste something and not eat it. It's possible, isn't it? That's what's happening. They've tasted it. Why? They're in the covenant community. They've seen lives changed as a result of Christ and salvation. They've seen peace come where there once was complete chaos. They've seen things change. They maybe even have experienced some of it in their own life. They've tasted it, but they have not taken it into themselves. Certainly Judas tasted Christ. He supped with our Savior. He carried the money. He probably handed out the loaves and the fish that God, the Lord God multiplied but he did not take it in. Shared in the Holy Spirit, what does this mean? As members of the covenant community where God regularly pours out his Holy Spirit, just like the rain falls on us, so all who are in this community will receive some blessing just being part of where God works. And just think about it. If someone would just be faithful to their husband or their wife, if someone would not get themselves into debt, if someone would not tell lies, if someone would not do violence to others, would not things go generally well for them compared to what's happening in society? So the person who's in the midst of the covenant community who lives according to the rules or the, according to the standards that God gives us will benefit to some degree from the blessings that come, sharing in the Holy Spirit. In fact, we know that you don't have to be a believer to share in the Holy Spirit. Balaam was spoken to directly by the Spirit of God. Would one say that Balaam was one of God's people? No. Spirit of God works and wills wherever he wants. Shared in the Holy Spirit. Tasted in the goodness of the word of God. Again, this concept of following these universal truths, the commandments of God, 
tasting the goodness of the Word of God, sitting under the Word of God. There are many things about the Word of God that are just simply common sense that we would not get in human wisdom. Think of the Proverbs and how they tell you to guard your tongue. If anyone would practice that in the workplace, pagan or otherwise, it would go well with them. Being under the constant teaching and preaching of the Word, they taste to a degree the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Specifically for these people, this is referring to the apostolic spiritual gifts that are going on to plant the church. So they have seen and shared in some degree in what the the apostles are doing. Everything from raising the dead to the miracles that were going on to establish the church. Now for us, this is slightly different in that we have the deposit of all those things in our scriptures. But we, we partake or we see the power of this as we read this historical account of what really happened. And anyone reading it, I've met many people who believe the historical reality of the Bible. They just don't take it to their heart. And they are in some way tasting the powers of the age to come, but yet not fully grasping. What does this all mean? Who are these people? What this means is that there are people in the covenant community, baptized, Sunday school attending, communion taking, home fellowship group participating, people who are recognized members of the church who are in fact not buying it. They're not, and they will not buy it. Eventually, at some point in time, their true colors will show, and they will reject all they have so graciously observed and partaken of. I don't claim to understand this. I just know this is what the Scripture teaches. And it's given to us so that we might be sober in our walk with the Lord and not take it for granted. That's why it's given to us. I could skip over this, and I I bet most preachers do. Who'd want to hit Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 and, and grow your church at the same time? But we have to hear it. It's a sober warning to us as believers. There is nothing more tragic than breaking covenant. I want to speak specifically to covenant children. You've been baptized. You've been marked with the covenant. Don't just ride it out. You have to grasp the covenant reality that your parents have grasped. Don't assume you're in just because your parents are. Don't reject. Don't stop growing in your maturity lest you become prey to the same concept, the same process that happens in people who have known from the beginning and tasted and even been enlightened. If they fall away from that, from that state of heaven at all, then they are crucifying once again the Son of God. They are taking up, as it were, the hammer from the Roman soldier and pounding the nail into the, into the Savior's hand yourself and saying, he deserves it. That's what it's like, rejecting all that you have been given. Arthur Pink says it very soberly. It is one of the most solemn in the Hebrews epistle, these verses, yea, to be met with anywhere in the New Testament. Probably few regenerate souls have read it thoughtfully without being moved to fear and trembling. Careless professors of Christ have frequently been rendered uneasy and conscious as they have heard its awe-inspiring language. It speaks of a class of persons who had been highly privileged, who had been singularly favored, but who, so far from having improved their opportunities, have wretchedly perverted them who had brought shame and reproach on the cause of Christ, and were it such hopeless condition that it was impossible, impossible to renew them again unto repentance. These are sobering words, and I want to draw a few proper applications of this sobering message to us for a moment in closing. First, brothers and sisters, please recognize from this passage and the whole of Scripture that membership in the covenant community, the church, is an awesome thing. It's an awesome thing. The church is the corporately elect community of God. The church 
to the church is given. The word of God, the special ministry of the Holy Spirit. Recognize that spiritual gifts are not given to the family or to the individual. They're given to the church. Individuals have them to edify the church. It's through the church that we have these things. The communion of the saints, the, the sacraments of grace, the fellowship of the brethren. Do not take what we have for granted. Avail yourself of what the church provides. Do not become lax in your walk. Move on towards maturity. That's the job of the church, to assist you in that process. On the other hand, secondly, membership in the church does not guarantee your standing before God. Just being a member of the church does not mean you're saved. It means you've got all the privileges of understanding salvation, all the means that God gives to grow you in your faith, but don't rest on your church membership certificate. Rest on your relationship with Christ. That's what the church proclaims to you. Thirdly, this passage, please hear this, because at least twice a year, maybe once a year, but it's becoming more frequently, I will have a dear brother or sister come to me racked in depression and guilt, convinced they've committed the unpardonable sin. Maybe you've been there in your walk. Maybe you've met someone who's thought that about something they have done. Please hear this. This passage is not admonishing the person who is genuinely struggling with sin, doubt, or depression. It is speaking of those who have renounced Christ to keep us all from going down a similar path. <clears throat> you may be depressed this morning, struggling. Are you renouncing Christ? Usually someone who comes and says they're struggling is not renouncing Christ. They're frustrated. Have we not all been there? That is not apostasy. That's the Christian life. Great commentator Brown says, we are not here dealing with the believer who is depressed about his spiritual failure and has temporarily lost interest in the things of God. No, what we're talking about is one who has lived and grown up in it, most likely, has claimed all the things that can be claimed, has seen it all, tasted it all, done it all, experienced it all, and still says no to Christ. That's who we're speaking of, an apostate. John Owen says, it is a fearful thing to realize that a man may experience the extraordinary operations of the Holy Spirit and yet not experience the saving generation of the Holy Spirit. I would also like to reiterate something I said earlier as a fourth application. This passage, taken in its proper context, refutes any Arminian notion that suggests a person who is genuinely justified or saved can be lost. That position completely misses the covenantal point, misses what it means to be in the church, God's people. It com does complete violence to not only all the doctrines I mentioned, but now also to the doctrine of ecclesiology, that of the church. In the end, these are people who looked the part, played the part, but showed their true colors. It's the worst kind of unbelieving there is, if you could put a degree on unbelief. Finally, I would also like to say in, in a strict caution to us in our own tradition, this passage sternly refutes any hyper-Calvinistic notion that God plans everything so we don't have to do anything on our part. That's as bad as what I just described in the Arminian position, if not worse. God is absolutely sovereign. He does ordain whatever comes to pass, including your perseverance in the truth. True saving faith produces works. Persevering is an active process. In this way, we are responsible before God. Finally, the last words that I would end with in this pericope come from verse 7 and verse 8. Look there, a vivid illustration is given. Land, rain, and crops, we might say. 
For land that has drunk the rain that falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You see the illustration there, what it's saying? The person who is addressed in these sober verses is like unto the land. The grace of God is like unto the water that falls on the land. Whether the land is genuinely fruitful will depend on what sprouts up. If Christ is in him or her, they will bear fruit and it will show. If they do not have Christ in them, eventually it will be evidenced by the fruit they yield, thorns and thistles. If you're wondering what kind of land you are today, consider the word of God you have heard this morning. Are you comforted or convicted? If you're comforted, that's a good, good thing. If you are convicted, that's a good, good thing. That means the Spirit of God is working in you as his child. If you could care less, there's nothing I can say that will change that. But if you're comforted or or convicted, that's good. That's the work of God on your heart through the Spirit. Comfort is the result of clinging close to Christ and seeing the work. Kind of like a child clinging close to his his mom or dad and sees something awful happening over there, but knows he's okay because he's clinging on to his mom or dad. It's terrible what's happening there, but I'm safe. That's comfort that comes from this passage, the child of God who clings to Christ. Because really when clinging, when clinging to mom or dad, who's really clinging to who? Oh, the kid grabs on for dear life, but the real security comes from the one who's holding him. That's the comfort that comes from this passage. Conviction is a result of the Holy Spirit moving you to recognize all is not right and you need to change. Still though, if you're convicted, my dear brother, my dear sister, that's a good thing. You've heard his voice today. And as the text says early in Hebrews, do not harden your heart. Respond. I don't know what it is, a besetting sin. Maybe it's some apathetic seed taking root, some bitterness towards another brother or sister, some unresolved conflict within your family that needs to take take place. It's growing in you. You know it's causing problems. And you're convicted today hearing. That's a good thing. Act upon that conviction and do not harden your heart. Brothers and sisters, finally, a text like this for me personally, just speaking for myself, and I hope you share this to some degree, It causes me to cling all the tighter to Christ, who is able to keep me from stumbling. A text like this causes me in my soul to resonate with the words that are written over 250 years ago by Augustus Toplady when he said in Rock of Ages, in the second and third verse, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let us pray. Father, we fly to you. We cling to you. Lord Jesus, you have secured us. Holy Spirit, move in us, change us, bring glory to the Father and to the Son by what you do through his people. Pray, Lord, for those who are in need of comfort, may they find it in Christ. And those who need to be shaken, I pray that you would shake them. I pray, Lord, that we as a covenant community would recognize the awesome, awesome privilege it is to be in this community at the same time recognizing what this community says over and over and over again. 
it is Christ and Christ alone. Pray this in his name. Amen.